So I'm just sitting there wondering what's going to happen next. Finally, it's me. <clears throat> Communion services, the sermon comes up earlier than it usually does. That's what threw me there. And I thought, oh, these, this, you know, what's going to go? Right, turn to John 15, to 14 that we've just read together. Uh, I, I was reminded of this this week. On April the 19th, 1642, the House of Commons in London ordered that the names of divines, ministers, and theologians fit to be consulted should be presented to the House, that is, to the House of Commons, the Parliament. They were chosen, two from each county in England, two from each university, two from the Channel Islands, Jersey and Guernsey, one from each county in Wales, four from the City of London. The assembly was called to meet at Westminster on the first day of July, 1643. There was a sermon preached at the beginning of that Westminster Assembly, which gave us our confession and catechisms. Apparently, it was a fairly lengthy sermon, and it was preached by the chairman of the assembly, a man who rejoiced in the name of William Twiss, T-W-I-S-S-E. His text was John 14, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I want to reassure you that I'm not going to take three hours to expound that verse as he did uh, this evening, just for your benefit. But verse 18 is key, really, in this little section in that it reminds us of the location of this teaching. Jesus has just referred to his disciples as his little children. We often read the passage we began with this evening in our call to worship in Isaiah 9, in which the coming Messiah will be described among uh, other titles and names as the everlasting Father. And we wonder, in what sense is Christ a father to his people? And he's a father to his people in that he causes his people to be born again by the coming of his Holy Spirit. He is the one who initiates the new birth, and therefore, as such, he is the father of his people. So chapter 13, 33, Jesus calls his disciples his little children. He is their father in the sense that he gives them life and teaches them and leads them. He is their rabbi. He is their example. He gives them both birth and life and guides them in the way that they should go. And it's in that context then that these disciples are feeling or are going to feel orphaned by his leaving. And so verse 18, he's giving them reassurance, I will not leave you as orphans. He is particularly speaking to those men in the upper room. In a way that you and I cannot fathom or get our heads around, those men in particular are going to be missing Jesus. They've been in his company for at least three years. They have uh, walked with him, talked with him, ate with him, uh, been on boats with him, been on storms with him, been at meals with him for that three-year period. They've heard his teaching, they've seen his miracles, they've felt the intensity of his presence, and they've become convinced that he is the Messiah. Whatever content they were putting into that 
description at this stage in the game, nonetheless, they are convinced that he is their leader, their teacher, their father. What is going to happen in the next few hours from this point is going to destabilize them. It will be the end of life as they know it, as he is taken from them and killed. Those men, those men sitting at the table with Jesus that night are key individuals. There is a clear boundary between you and I as believers this evening and those men. Those men were chosen by Jesus to be with him, that is to be in his company, to see firsthand, close up, day after day after day after day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute, in his immediate presence. They were to see him. They were to be eyewitnesses and ear witnesses of who Jesus is, what Jesus had said and done. They are key figures in the history of redemption. Their work, the work of those apostles, is transitional between Jesus' work and our work. The book of Acts, for example, that records their work is often called the Acts of the Apostles, or perhaps more clearly, the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. It is about them, because they are continuing Jesus' work. In fact, they often identify, the Apostle Paul identifies himself with the suffering servant, one of the titles that Jesus used of himself. They carried on that ministry. We discover that they are the foundation upon which the church is built. Their teaching, their ministry, their witness is the foundation of the church. We are building on that foundation. Ours is a different ministry than theirs. They are the key teachers of the church. They are the first receptors of the Spirit. And much of what Jesus says in chapters 14, 15, and 16 refers to them alone, whether by way of prophecy about their future or teaching about what they will receive particularly distinct from us. We will learn from their experience that Jesus keeps his promises. But having said that, and I want to say that very clearly so that you know that first and foremost, Jesus is speaking to them. By extension, certainly in some areas, we find him also speaking to us. And we're going to look at some of those aspects here. First of all, as Jesus promises his helper, uh, the coming of his helper to be with them. His presence is what they were going to miss. And so he says to them, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper who will be with you. We looked last time at the kind of helper Jesus was to them. He was with them. He was present with them. They were in his company. And he hasn't stopped being their helper. But he has gone to heaven. Jesus in his humanity is located in heaven with God, before God, day and night. In his humanity, he is in one place at one time. He is with the Father. And there with the Father, he is our representative. He is our advocate. He is our counsel. He acts, speaks up for us. And we find him doing that here, asking the Father for something for them and for us. 
and he sends the Spirit. And his intercession, we need to know this and be reminded of this this evening, brothers and sisters, what Jesus is doing right now in heaven in the presence of God, interceding for us and pleading for us, that is always effective. Here he tells them, he's going to ask the Father, and he tells them, and the Father will give you another helper. That, that is inevitable. What Jesus asks for, for you, will always be done, will always be given. Now it's the kind of helper then that I want you to look at in verse 16. There are two words for, that are translated into English by the word another I will give you, he will give you another helper to be with you forever. One of the words, heteros, means another of a different kind. Another of a different kind. The word that's used here is the Greek word alos, which means another of the same kind. In other words, the Holy Spirit is to be the same as Jesus to these men. It will be like Jesus being present with them. He will come to take Jesus' place. Not in heaven where Jesus is. He will bring Jesus down to them in their hearts. He is the Spirit of Christ. He is another helper like Jesus to these men. And I want you to notice that it is the Spirit. He's called that in verse 17, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit turns up over and over again in the Bible, beginning in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. There is the Holy Spirit active in creation, and he comes up again and again in the Bible, and wherever he turns up, he's doing things that only God can do. And in the New Testament, he is regarded as a person. You can, you can hurt him. You can grieve him. You can grieve him away. The Holy Spirit is someone who, who feels and sympathizes and, and, and enters into the feeling of, of our infirmities. He comes close to us. He is present with us and in us in a way that Jesus could never be. Jesus, in his humanity, can only be one place at one time. As the Son of God, we learned yet this morning, he is everywhere, in all things, and outside of all things. That is, all things that have been made. In his deity. But as, as his humanity is, as far as his humanity is concerned, he can only be in one place at one time. The Holy Spirit can be with every one of us all the time, wherever we are in the world. The Holy Spirit is his helper for every one of his people. So he's the Spirit of God. He's a person. He brings all the energies of the Godhead to bear, and he is Jesus' gift to his people. He is another helper. He comes alongside us. He is the perfect presence of Jesus with us. And he fulfills all of these roles that are captured in this Greek word parakletos, translated helper. He is a counselor, an advocate, a comforter, an encourager, an intercessor, a mediator, a companion, a patron, a helper, an empowering presence. He is there with us. This is a very rich word. No one word in English gets the meaning of this word to help that's used here. And of course, the, re- the reason for his coming is that we, we need him. We need his empowering presence all the time. 
if we're going to survive as Christians on our own in the world. Today we're all together. We keep each other warm. Well, you would if you sat near each other. Keep each other warm. Uh, but, but tomorrow we're all going to be all disassembled. We're going to be out there in the world in different places doing different things. And, and sometimes we find ourselves very much alone, surrounded by people who don't believe in Jesus. How am I going to survive in that environment? Without the empowering presence of Jesus with me wherever I am at every minute of every day. That's what this helper does. And the Holy Spirit as our helper as a church provides a bulwark, is a stronghold, is a fortress for the people of God. Individually and corporately as a church. And so when you're floundering, when you're in trouble, when you're in difficulty, when your heart is torn apart with anxiety or fear or whatever, who do you turn to? You may have a good friend you turn to. You may have, uh, you may have a lawyer you want to call in depending on the circumstances. You may need a consultant to come in to help you with your business or whatever it may be. But ultimately, when life is on the edge, where are you going to turn well, you don't turn to the Ghostbusters. Who are you going to call? The Ghostbusters. Does anybody remember that movie? That's good. I just wanted to make sure you were still there. Uh, the, who you're going to call is the Spirit of God. He is the empowering presence with the people of God wherever you are in the world. He is our best friend, just as Jesus was a best friend to these disciples while he was here in the flesh. While they could turn to him and ask him questions and, and rely on him. While he was here in the flesh, the Holy Spirit is given by Jesus to you and to the church to be your best friend, to be your, the empowering presence of God with you, wherever you are, whatever the circumstances, all the time, to strengthen you and to help you and to cause you to stand. He is there with you. He is the empowering presence of God. How good a friend is he? How powerful a friend is he? Well, you start at the beginning of the Bible and there you see him overshadowing creation and forming, bringing order out of disorder, form out of formlessness, life out of non-life. He is a powerful presence. You find him in the Old Testament, for example, enabling prophets to speak the word of God. You find him gifting people to serve in practical ways. You find him active in the miracles performed by Elijah and Elisha. And you find him regularly spoken of as the great gift we look forward to when Messiah comes. Today, God manifests himself in the life of the believer by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Do you notice the language that's used? He will be with you. There he is, your companion, your helper, your friend. But more than that, he will dwell with you, yes, but he will also be in you, verse 17. In you, present, in you. Not only with you at all times, but in you. You don't have far to look for the Holy Spirit if you're a child of God. He is there within you. But I want you to notice, what do we particularly need the Holy Spirit to be to us in the world with all of its challenges? And I think that's spelled out for us in verse 17. 
I will ask the Father, and he will give another helper to you who, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Now, you might have thought that he would pick another category to describe the, the work of the Spirit. You might have wanted him to talk about the Spirit of power, the Spirit of gifts, the Spirit of miracles. But no, he begins, and in fact, he will concentrate on this and develop it in, in the chapters to come, and we won't go into it tonight. But he focuses on this aspect of the truth. Back in chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus has said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Earlier on in John's Gospel in chapter 8, Jesus has said to his disciples, You will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Later on in chapter 17, Jesus will say, Your word, speaking to his Father, your word is truth. Here he says that he's going to send to the believer, to his church, a constant companion, the empowering presence of Jesus by the Spirit with the believer wherever they are, and that the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Now, there are a number of things there that are countercultural. The very idea of something that is non material, something that is spiritual rather than physical and material, is a kind of countercultural idea. The Holy Spirit is not, does not have a body or parts. He is spirit, pure spirit. He is present intensely everywhere he is. With you, with me, with believers on the other side of the world, he is present intensely with whoever he's with, wherever he is, all the time. The world can't take that. The world is suspicious of what it cannot see. And what Jesus is telling his disciples is this. I'm going to be with you, but from now on you will not see me. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to ascend to the Father. There I'm going to take my place at the right hand of God in the humanity that God has given to me. But you think about it. While I was here, I was there with you. I could, you could consult me. You had a question, you could ask me. If you were wrestling with an, an idea that you couldn't get your head around, you could come to me and I would help to un, unknot the knots that were created in your mind as you thought about these matters. I'm going to send you the Spirit. From now on, there won't be anything you can see. You'll have to believe in me. The people who follow you will believe in me through your message. He's going to say that in chapter 17. The apostles will give their account of the life of Jesus, of his words and his works. We believe it, but we don't get to see him the way they did. We believe in him without seeing. Having not seen him, we love him and we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And Jesus says there's an even better, greater blessing to those who believe in me and have not seen me. Now, the world can't get its head around believing something you cannot see. And yet the Spirit comes as the Spirit of truth, and He comes in order to lead us into truth. And the reason the Spirit, Jesus, has to go, He 
tells his disciples is that unless he goes, the Spirit won't come. Now, it's to our advantage, he tells them again and again, it's to our advantage that he goes so that the Spirit would come to us. Now, they were worried about this. They were worried about what that meant. And so Jesus goes on to say, you, you, actually, you actually know him. That is the Spirit. For he dwells with you and will, when he comes in power and Pentecost, will be in you. You actually know him better than you think. Because you, they had known Jesus. And Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit without measure. Everything Jesus did and said, he did and said in the power of the Holy Spirit. Whenever he preached, he was preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so although they had never really got their heads around the teaching about the Holy Spirit, by knowing Jesus in the flesh, they had seen the power of the Spirit of God in action. When God speaks to your heart by the Word of God, by the preaching of that Word or the reading of that Word, when God speaks to your heart, you are feeling the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you, at work upon you, drawing you, drawing you towards God. He dwells with you and will be in you. Here is the guarantee Jesus gives to individual believers like you and me that we will persevere to the end. Here is the guarantee given to the church at large that the church will not cease upon the face of the earth until Jesus comes again. And we need those promises as never before in the age in which we are living. It is the presence and help of the Holy Spirit that ensures the security and perpetuity of the church of God in the world. And all the fires of Rome and the compromises of the Middle Ages and the wars, the religious wars of the early part of the modern era and the political banishment and terrorist attacks and Stalinist purges and secular marginalization has not succeeded in silencing or destroying the church of God. He dwells with you and will be in you. He will guarantee the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of God. So he promises them a helper, and he promises them that he will reveal himself to them. Look at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, he's making a comment, of course, to the disciples here, but he, the, the principle that he's establishing with the disciples here is a, a principle that applies to us, and it's this. Quite simply this. This idea of manifesting means to reveal. It means to reveal something. Jesus was manifest with the disciples. They saw him. So they, they, there he was before them. And after the resurrection, he would come and he would see them again for, and stay with them for six weeks and so on. But they also knew that it was the promise of the Bible that when the Messiah came, he would manifest himself to the world or to the nations. That the nations had been promised to him as his inheritance. 
Once, on one occasion, Jesus' natural brothers um, came to him and said to him, since you're doing all these things, shouldn't you show yourself, manifest yourself to the world? And even here in verse 22, the disciples, Judas, not Iscariot, says to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And he makes it very clear that only those who believe in him, only those who have a relationship with him, actually catch a glimpse of him in this age. He will only manifest himself to his own people. The world does not see it. The world does not grasp it. No matter how carefully we explain it, no matter how clearly we articulate it, the world without the Spirit of God cannot see Jesus. Now you say, I can't see Jesus either. But you see him, don't you, with the eyes of faith. You get it. And the getting it, when your friends don't get it, is seeing him, is having him manifest himself to you at this level. He's making clear to you, revealing himself to you, so that you see Jesus in the Word. You sense that. You sense that when you're singing some of these great hymns that are based on Bible truth, and you're articulating those words as you're singing them. Something of the reality that is being captured by the hymn writer grips your mind, and you see it. There are times you come to church when a little light goes off in your head and you see it. The truth dawns upon you. Jesus says, I will manifest myself to you. The Spirit will come and I will manifest myself to you. Well, the third thing that Jesus promises these men is that they will have hope. I will not leave you orphans. Verse 18 I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Now, at one level, I think he's saying to these disciples, I will be raised again, and when I'm alive again from the dead, I'm going to come and see, and you will physically see me. You will see me in the flesh. I will come, and you, he's talking to those men in that room, you will see me. And that happened, of course. After the resurrection, those men were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. That's absolutely true. But he's saying more than that, I think. He's, he's talking about something else that, that is to come. Yet a little while, the world will, not, will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I'm in my Father, and you in me, and I in you in that day does that day mean the final day that is the final day at the end of history the last day before Jesus the last day Jesus comes again the day of resurrection well certainly on the day of resurrection all the clouds and mists will be finally dispersed clarity full clarity will come to us because in fact we will see Jesus in his glory, we will see him as he is on that day. 
At Advent, we're looking forward, aren't we? We look forward to that day when we will see him, not in that poor, lowly manger with the oxen standing by, but in heaven, at God's right hand on high. Oh, we look forward to that. But there's a sense in which, there's a sense in which this can happen right now as he comes to us in the Word of God. And reveals himself to us in the word of God. And one day he will raise us and we will see him as he is. And he gives us the gift. Right now he gives us this gift of life. Because I live, you will live. You live now. If you're a believer, you have eternal life now. You haven't got the resurrection body, but you've got resurrection life. Spiritual resurrection life. One day you will have physical resurrection life. The first guarantees the second. You say, how do I know I have the first? Resurrection life. I say to you, the world cannot see him. Do you see him? The world will not have him manifesting himself to them. No matter how much airtime we get, no matter how much influence we have on the levers of power within our country, No matter how many television shows we manage to get onto. No matter how many of our celebrities manage to get into a late night show and get interviewed and give a gospel message. The world will not see him apart from the grace of God in the new birth. That's the reality. So if you're here tonight and you have grasped who Jesus is for yourself, do you see what a miracle that is? Do you see what an absolute work of grace has been done in you? The world cannot see that. And you do. There is the evidence of that spiritual resurrection life. Well, we come down to Judas, not Iscariot, saying to him, Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not the world? And Jesus answered him and said, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come and make our home with him. I want you to notice that having the Holy Spirit in your heart means that the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of Jesus, comes and makes his home in the heart of the believer and that the Father and the Son through the Spirit present in your life bring the Godhead into the life of the believer. As the the Apostle Peter puts it, the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What a remarkable thing. Ordinary people like us, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Jesus and the Father make their home in the heart of the believer right now. And one day, what is true of the individual believer and the church, that the Father and the Son are present by the Spirit, will be even more true. On that great day, when the new heavens and the new earth are created. In the language of the book of Revelation, it will be fulfilled. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself 
will be with them as their God. And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That's coming a day when the great prayer of Israel, captured in the blessing of Aaron, will be fulfilled. And we will see God lift up the light of his countenance upon us and giving us his peace forevermore. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that tonight, as we meditate on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who comes not only to teach us, but to bring the very active presence of the Father and the Son to us, that we would enjoy him. And as we come to the Lord's table now, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be pleased to deliver to those who believe in the Lord Jesus and who will take this bread and this cup, will deliver the blessings of which these elements speak, that he will deliver Christ to them, that he will deliver the nourishment and the sustenance and the enjoyment that there is in the Savior and which he means us to enjoy. Deliver that to us as we gather at the Lord's table. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Amen.